listening to the Infinity Festival Hollywood Podcast. I'm John Gaunt. The Infinity Festival Hollywood Podcast features top creators and technologists as they explore how to push storytelling to the next level. Now, these sessions from the 2021 Infinity Festival Hollywood are presented by Z by HP, NVIDIA, XLA, and co-presented by Qualcomm. The next edition of the Infinity Festival Hollywood will take place November 2nd through November 5th, 2022 in Hollywood's Vinyl District. Visit www.infinityfestival.com to learn more about this year's event. This episode tracks how interactive games have evolved from a product to a service to a community-based proposition for both the player and the publisher. What does this evolution mean for the gaming and media worlds? Brady Woods and Travis Bradshaw from Microsoft sit down with Annie Chang from Universal Pictures and Greg Mandel, formerly of Technicolor, to tease out what is it about video games that are transforming how we think about audiences and business models across media ecosystems. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Infinity Festival here in Hollywood. We're going to continue with our more than just gaming track as we're going to start a panel now about the intersection of gaming and media. This is something that actually is near and dear to my heart, starting originally as a gaming content creator in the space and now helping to oversee some marketing and gaming content functions. This panel will talk about how sort of games have evolved as games as a product, to games as a service, to games as a community as well, and what impacts that has on how you reach your community in the world of games. So I am going to introduce Brady Woods from Microsoft. She's the Director of Storytelling and Outreach. She has over 15 years of experience within media and entertainment with a focus in production, visual effects, and post-production, and the workflows and technologies that power those functions. Previously, Brady spent 11 years at Technicolor in various business development, business management, and leadership roles, helping to build new workflow streams and support content creation across all the Technicolor brands and businesses. Currently, Brady is a director of storytelling, engagement, and outreach for Microsoft's Azure's Entertainment Vertical. In this role, she is responsible for bringing the work of engineers and project managers to life through messaging and stories that inform, educate, and drive action with the media, entertainment, and gaming community with one goal in mind, helping them achieve more. Please help me welcome Brady to the stage. Well, let's uh, start maybe with a round of intros, if that makes sense. And maybe we'll start with you, Travis. You want to tell us a little bit about uh, yourself and your background and what you're doing today. And then we'll pass to Greg and then to Annie, and then we'll jump in. Sure. Thanks, Brady. So I'm Travis Bradshaw. I'm the CTO of the Gaming Cloud at Microsoft. And we're working at the intersection of Xbox and Azure to just make the best cloud possible for game creators to make their dreams come true. And uh, previous to that, I've been at Microsoft about a year. And previous to that, I was at id Software, where I was a technical director, working on uh, the id Tech game engine, the franchises Doom and Quake and other id Tech games. I'm Greg Mandel. Uh, for the last 16 years, I've worked at Technicolor in a number of different of, uh, in a number of different positions. Uh, most recently, running our animation and games business. Uh, over the years, I've also worked across visual effects, post production, advertising. So I've got some insight across sort of all of the the different areas, including AR, VR, and some of Technicolor's uh, forays into those those specific areas. Hi, everyone. I'm Annie Chang. I'm the uh, VP of Creative Technologies at Universal Pictures. Um, we look at new technologies and workflows for our productions, but then also how we could actually reuse those assets in uh, various marketing opportunities like AR and VR. Um, and I'm happy to be here. 
Well, awesome. Well, with that, let's do a little level setting. When we think about the intersection of gaming and media, I'll sort of lay some of the Microsoft perspective to sort of as the baseline of how I'm coming at the conversation, and then we can kind of go around and have a, have a discussion about it. So I think, uh, as the description says, we really look at uh, the transformation in the gaming industry. We look at gaming having moved from being a product that would ship to gaming as a service that is direct to consumer to gaming as a community, and really that focus on gaming as a community, a lot of that we see is because now that technology permeates really every aspect of our lives, we have the opportunity to really be involved in the creation process, and that shift has really been seen through the gaming industry. And I think a lot of what we see on the Microsoft side is that we see similar shifts happening within media, right? We're seeing that same direct-to-consumer shift. We're seeing the importance of being cross-device from PC to your television screen to your mobile device and understanding how we better engage with our audience and involve them in the creation process. And so with that said, I would say, you know, Greg, in your experience, kind of having traversed everything from traditional distribution to visual effects, to animation and games and advertising, have you seen similar sort of influences from the gaming sort of playing into traditional media? And, and how have you really seen engagement change and then the technologies that kind of power production? Have you seen sort of that overlap in the migration of learnings from gaming to media? Uh, sure. So first off, on the engagement side, in my experience, I just uh, don't have as much sort of interaction uh, specific to engagement and the, the content itself. From a production standpoint, though, and uh, technology perspective, it's all over the place. And outside, we were just talking about things as basic as Slack, which started as a tool that was used for mobile gaming, is now prevalent well beyond the, the media and entertainment industry. Um, we're also obviously seeing game engine permeate all aspects uh, of media and entertainment. Uh, but for me, the thing that's been most interesting is seeing the impact on the actual artist. Um, so if you look at my last experience running the animation and game studio, over time, over the last few years, you're starting to see crossover in terms of the, the artist's skill set. So as an example, we were working on a show that was very heavy on automobiles, animated program, kids content, heavy on automobiles. Uh, we also, within our games group, had a lot of experience creating mobile games uh, with automobile rigs. Um, based on some of the challenges that the traditional animation team was having, those were solved by starting to bring your gaming uh, animation group and your gaming assets group together with the, the actual more traditional animation team. And super interesting. I think to that same end, Annie, how do you see that from a creative technologies perspective? Like, are you seeing more gaming technologies making its way into the creative process on the, the live action content production side? Absolutely. It's very exciting, actually, because like um, if you think about it, video game engine con uh, creation is just, you know, creating a world, right, where people can run around and shoot people or do whatever. But the, what's cool about it is that you're basically building a virtual set, right? So why couldn't we actually reutilize that in live action? And I know we're just talking about this earlier is that, you know, everyone always thinks about like, oh, game engine in production, it's Mandalorian, you know, and it's all the LED walls and the big volume and stuff like that. But there's so much more that you can do with game engine technologies in production. I mean, from like, we've looked at, you know, pre-visualization and tech biz and being able to like really plan your shoots out ahead of time. Um, and then also things like location scouting. That was actually a, a quite a, I think, a, a saver for a lot of people during the pandemic was that they could actually join in game engine remotely and be able to actually scout out a location together, although they were all at their homes, you know, that sort of thing. So there's a lot of potential for game engine and, um, um, and then I think we're, we'll probably talk a little bit, touch it on it a little bit, but like the reuse of the assets too as well for like different uh, applications, you know, whether it's in production or then into like marketing 
or into like games, for example, or theme parks and things like that. It's like, it's pretty exciting. It's, um, we're not all fully there yet. It's still, you know, going to take a little bit of time to get there and it's not some magical panacea, but I mean, it is just another tool, uh, for our filmmakers, our live action filmmakers to basically utilize, um, in a really cool new way, I think. Well, and Travis, how do you see that space, right? So obviously coming from the game tech side of the house, how do you sort of see, now that you spend more time with me on the media side of the house at Microsoft, how are you sort of envisioning a lot of the work that you and your team is working on in Microsoft sort of participating in this media space? Yeah, I think that's really interesting. In fact, it's, it's fun hearing these stories from the other side because working <laughs> at id software where we were always trying to push the rendering as far as we could, soon it's like, well, like we used to be able to do low poly models, but now we really just need someone who's done high poly models from, from the film industry. And then now when you talk about uh, scouting areas in VR, you know, a lot of areas we're working at in game technology is now about scanning environments and using those as sources so that the materials look more realistic. And in this notion about how this, the data just keeps growing as you try to bring more realism in that uh, there's, there seems to be a really strong intersection. And I think it's really fun essentially to see like working with artists, like some of my favorite animators uh, that I worked with at id, you know, or from Disney or DreamWorks or all kinds of places that didn't start in gaming compared to some of us that had just been in gaming the whole time. And it's that kind of cross pollination. I think it's the best ideas where somebody comes at it from a different angle or something like that. And I think that's, where I think the intersection will continue to grow is when it comes to like those VR experiences, driving for low latency, both in game engine technology, but also in networking and interface. Like we used to have TVs just laying around the office where we would time how long the scan was from when we clicked the mouse to when we saw the pixels change. And then uh, we did, at the time we were just trying to make a more fun shooter. Then later it was like, oh, I think this is the key to get people to stop throwing up in the VR headset <laughs> is to kind of follow these same, these same practices. And so I think the intersection is super fun and I'm really excited to, to be involved. To that same end, I think we talk a lot about production in the cloud on the media side of the house, right? So aligned with the Movie Labs 2030 vision of storing once and then everyone collaborating on that storage. And that shift to the cloud has challenges and opportunities, right, on both sides. And so as you're working really uh, towards game development in the cloud and what that looks like, Travis, what are those challenges and opportunities you see within game production to that shift in the cloud? And then I will follow that up with curious from both of your perspectives, whether those challenges and opportunities kind of align to what Travis is talking about. Yeah, I think the biggest challenges we have is uh, unlike creating just great user experiences, like whether it's a virtual event or a concert, you know, there's a certain amount of novelty that lets you get away with more. When we're working with people trying to produce their games, this is like their day in, day out, at their desk, at work, just trying to get this model done. And the tolerances just get narrower and narrower. And so part of the challenge, but also the opportunity is we really get to try to push ahead at driving like low latency uh, tools and tool sets that work with the cloud and scale larger. And then especially when it comes to asset reuse, we run into that all the time in gaming where like the you're constantly battling between creating the most reusable asset, but also creating the most optimized asset. And you end up with a large kind of digital asset management challenge where you're trying to build the best and most reusable assets, but like 
if the frame rate needs to be cut in this room, what, what do you do? Sometimes that means poly counts must go down. And finding like a tiered storage solution that works where you can almost see that like high, te high quality textures and modeling, it's like kind of pushing a little bit more towards concept where the creative teams lay more groundwork about the 3D assets. And then it's about, you know, building level of detail models and other things as we go into other reuse scenarios. How does that really align, Annie, with sort of what you're seeing on the on the live action side and then and then follow up with Greg sort of on the animation and advertising side? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, it's, and thank you for bringing up the Movie Labs 2030 vision. If you <laughs> I try. If, if you folks aren't familiar with the Movie Labs uh, uh, vision paper, um, please do. Please go look it up. Just Google it. You'll you'll find it. Um, but uh, basically, the the concepts on the Movie Labs paper were mainly about dealing with uh, our, our new ways of working in the cloud. Uh, and it, it is 20 30, meaning like, you know, because we knew it was going to be hard to basically get there. Um, plus, there's also a real-time rendering um, aspect in, in that paper, too, because we do see a lot of uh, really great stuff happening. And so I think what's interesting is like right now, I mean, in my world, I have like these three specific areas that we really look at when it comes to like new technologies and looking future filmmaking. And it's it's this production in the cloud workflows. There's the, um, the, the game engine, you know, real-time rendering, and then there's the machine learning aspect. Um, and what is interesting about all three of those is you can't really take those like right now we're, we're looking at them as like individual like ways of, of getting somewhere right whether it's like you know machine learning and data analytics and and like you know that that synthetic beings thing and then you have the game engine stuff which is like the mandalorian thing with the led walls and the you know the the, the scouting stuff um but i think overall like those three areas will just collide together uh and um and and as the technologies get better and we're actually able to do like really nice looking real-time rendering i mean that's going to have a great impact um on our visual effects uh and like how we actually do things. Um, the other trick too, just from a live action standpoint is honestly, we're not very good at planning. Um, so I think I can say that. Um, but the thing is, is like with virtual production and with the game engine stuff, you have to plan stuff ahead of time, right? You have to have this virtual art department that's uh, available to create your assets ahead of time. You can't just like come on set and be like, I'd like, you know, this tree and this building and like all these cars and everything like that. You just can't, you have to have that stuff set up ahead of time. So it will give us, um, I think, uh, kind of like going back to the seventies or like back to when we actually did like in camera visual effects where people planned ahead of time to actually have all of that. So there, there's, um, a lot of really interesting things. And like I'm saying, so I'll get to your question and answer for your question in a second. It's a very long, <laughs> circuitous route. But but like the, the thing is, is like I think right now we're very much looking at these as like individual kind of siloed technologies. But as gaming gets into the cloud, so I'm very happy, Travis, if you guys can get that working for us, you know, because I keep trying. I know. I know. Well, I mean, and that's the thing. It's like, you know, with the pandemic and everything, I mean, the, all the remote collaboration that has to happen. Right. I mean, it really can only happen like if things are actually in the cloud and people are actually centralizing where they're actually accessing, right, to actually, you know, maximize it. But then you have the latency issues, like you're mentioning, we still have bandwidth issues and the last mile type thing. But I mean, we're going to get there and it's going to be fantastic. And I think there'll still be a hybrid thing, right? You're going to have to have some things that are on-prem, um, especially like, you know, it's it seems more reasonable that you would have the on-prem processing for like the LED walls, for example, right, as opposed to trying to get that out from the cloud. But I think there's a lot of really 
interesting, you know, camera to cloud workflows, things that that, you know, nature, you know, the, the rendering and, and possible some processing up in the cloud to bring down to set, you know, on an edge device. I mean, there, there's a lot of, to explore when it comes to all of this. The cloud stuff, I think, is just it's just right around the corner. We're going to get there. Um, but, you know, when we do, it'll be fantastic. And how about you, Greg, when you look at like being on the the artist side of the house, the work for hire artist side of the house, like how does the shift to the cloud sort of match with the business models? What are the challenges around that? Like how how are we going to get there? Do you think? Because when we think about, you know, even on Annie and on Travis's side of the house, the actual maintenance of the artists themselves and the infrastructure that supports those artists currently lives at places like a Technicolor, right? It's a third party vendor that basically has to help us make the decision to get to the cloud. And so how do you see those challenges from that perspective? It's the challenges are similar really to, to what Travis and Annie were saying. Um, look, we're seeing a lot of activity from a rendering uh, perspective. We're not there yet in terms of storage. We're not there yet in terms of workstations in the cloud. <clears throat> Part of that is due to the size of the teams. You know, as an example, if you look at the beginning of the pandemic, um, I took 2,100 people in India and that were used to working in a studio every day, moved them, had them within a matter of weeks working from home. Um, from a cloud perspective, that would have been a whole nother set of challenges. By the way, if we didn't have latency issues, et cetera, it would have been great if you could just spin up workstations, but we're not there yet. Um, it's gonna take a lot of people banging away at it to, to get there. So I'm, I'm confident it's gonna happen, but the, it's sort of the, the, the it, it, right right now, the you know if you look at it from a, almost like a bandwidth standpoint, it's just, it's, there's not enough out there. Yeah, I think one of the challenges that having been on the technical side, now on the cloud side, I see a lot of, and even in, in some of the conversations we've had, Annie, is like, we have to find a place in the process to take that first step, right? We have to identify what we're what we're going to put up in the cloud and what is the value the cloud brings to what gets up there, right? So when we think about storing original camera media as an example, it's like we have to create value for that original camera media that can be either tracked directly by production or has enough value, I think, that can be tracked by the content creators and the studios themselves, which I think probably gets to a decent transition. I really like the way you looked at it too, Annie, which is to say if we continue to look at them siloed, we probably won't find that value. We have to really think of those three different things that you were really talking about, which is, yes, there's production in the cloud, but there's also understanding render and real-time render and where the cloud has those scalable render resources. And then there's also the fact that ML and the AI aspects of how we improve the time to market can be done in the cloud once the models are trained, right? And so looking at those different opportunities is how we, we drive value to the cloud, which ultimately will drive adoption. I think to that end, it's a good transition to sort of talk a little bit about one of the things I think gaming and media share in common, and you guys have both talked about it, is that asset reuse piece. And so, Annie, talk to me a little bit about how you view sort of what media is doing around asset reuse and how you feel like some of that might actually have an opportunity to inform what happens in gaming. And if that brings that value to the cloud, you think, in your mind? Yeah. I mean, again, it's it's one of those things where, where you know, this concept of a digital backlot, right, and having the ability to, like, reuse those assets. And, you know, we were just having this conversation earlier this week about, you know, with visual effects vendors as to, like, well, uh, animation houses as to, like, how much um, can you really reuse, right? Because the problem is, like, with the rigging and, like, you know, a lot of the textures, things that, you know, the, the components that make up that model, you know, they're, they're actually, they start 
effort to become um, uh, already kind of kind of um, just something that you can't use, you know, once the production's done, specific, right? Specific, right? Yeah. So so there's very specific things, but I, I think there's still. I mean, I guess there's there's a way to look at it, like if you're a visual effects house or an animation house, you know, what you can reuse uh, versus like a studio, which um, could actually repurpose things in a lower res kind of quality for like AR, VR experiences, immersive experiences. Again, the marketing thing, but you always have to like get things out there like that are fresh and, and interesting. Um, and uh, I have, I do have an interesting thing that we just released on Thursday that I can talk about. It's not cool. an asset reuse thing exactly. So we can maybe finish this if you want yeah. first and then we'll go to it. But I mean, for us, we really do see like from a studio standpoint, I mean, if you build, you know, the dinosaurs, you know, ILM builds the dinosaurs for Jurassic World. It's like, well, wasn't, wouldn't it be fantastic if you could use that in a TV series or like in a theme park, you know, for an animatronic, you know, as a, as a reference or like, you know, all those type of things. And, you know, I think that's kind of the, the holy grail, right, is being able to get to that point where you don't have to rebuild everything from scratch again. Now, knowing that, like, honestly, it does feel like, you know, for the VFX vendors and for animation vendors, they do have to probably rebuild stuff to an extent. So it's not, again, the the panacea that everybody thinks is like, oh, yeah, we'll just like take that off this digital backlot and we'll just reuse that like in the next movie. You know, things always improve and everything from technology standpoint. But there is at least, you know, some starting point for you that I think that you could actually reuse those. Um, and again, it's like, you know, as we become be better at being, you know, game engine native and being able to actually take things that are in a Maya world and put them into game engine, you know, and, and like things are getting better with the real time rendering, you know, it, I think there'll be a lot more exchange and, and reuse there. Well, and Travis, you feel like there's similar, similar aspects to gaming, right? Which is that asset reuse piece. Talk oh, absolutely. Like there, there's a couple things that work to our advantage on asset reuse. One is that as long as it ends up on a screen, eventually you kind of look at it through a screen door and it will depend on how big the squares are in the screen door, what fidelity you need. So a mobile experience can use something a lot different. But also talking about like mixing those three pillars that you described, Danny, is that uh, that's where it, like the AI ML stuff gets really exciting, where it'd be like, okay, well we have this on the back lot, but unlike this specific piece of set, we can take a concept art and ask ML to like, hey, could you just, shift all the colors and the style a little bit and get it closer so that like really all tools, it's really about kind of like, how can you help creative people do more with the technology that they have? And there's a certain amount of it that becomes rote. And the more that we can do to kind of take that rote out and let them apply their creativity directly rather than the others, I think will be really good. And so I, I agree, like getting that back lot, scanning things, having things reusable is like kind of step one because it makes the fodder for when we start connecting all these areas together. And that's where it's really fun, like working at, at a cloud company where it's like, oh, well, how will we build the plumbing to like make that possible? Like it doesn't sound exciting, but I get excited about like, oh, what's the shareable common data model that will make it so that the that we can share AI learning models with each other without having to actually share all of our data with each other and kind of getting it all together so that it's more fun to work with. Travis, we are kindred spirits. You are. We have to talk about that common data model. I know it's very exciting. Common, common ontologies, right, people? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We need that. Um, yeah, and I agree with you about the machine learning because, I mean, for example, like nowadays with just flat 2D video, you know, there's a lot of um, upresing capability, right? Like making your standard definition content into like 4K or 8K, right? And it actually looks pretty good. It's like I'm hoping that there will be some sort of ML like that can help us, you know, with these models and, and helping with the, you know, it, you might not be able to like reuse the rigging, but if it can analyze the, um, the motion, for example, right? And then maybe recreate the rigging or something like that, that would be fantastic. 
It'll be interesting because, you know, when you do AI work, sometimes it's hard to tell what the result comes from. I can imagine animated models in the future where you can't see the rig. You're like, I don't know why it looks like a tiger. It just does. And, and that's the kind yeah. of place where I think we'll get to sooner than we expect. I think to that end, Greg, when we look at like the pressures that are on the animation industry at large right now with the streaming providers and the amount of volume that has to be created by animation, this is really the panacea I see, which is when we think of those machine learning opportunities, we think of AI, curious sort of what, what your take is in terms of the pressures that are on the output, right? When we think of, of the amount of animation that has to be created and gaming as well. I mean, there's a huge boost in content. So how do you see sort of that ML place playing in? So tons of pressure on the ML side. A lot of people are looking at it, but I have yet to see a solution yeah. that truly works. So we're a ways off. Um, going back for a second to asset reuse, um, a good so real world example. If you look at Technicolor and its animation and game studio and Micros Animation Studios, um, we were responsible for both the latest SpongeBob feature and also um, Camp Coral which is the SpongeBob TV show. Uh, well, TV show, streaming show, however you want to call Episodic. it. Um, perfect example where from uh, an external perspective or even senior management perspective at Technicolor, they'd say, well, of course you, you shared assets. Yeah. The answer is zero. Right. Nothing was shared. And fundamentally, it came down to the rigs. Um, you might have been able to share some of the basic geometry in terms of the skins and everything like that, but ultimately, that doesn't save you that much time. So until we get somewhere with machine learning, with the rigs, and fundamentally differences in the creative, right? Part of this is when you're looking at budgets for a feature versus a game versus a series, you're going to ask those rigs and those characters to do different things. Yeah. Um, so we're not, you know, we don't have that that common denominator yet across the properties. I think now if we start well in advance to figure out the plumbing, yeah. so that way we can start to do it, that's that's the path. Yeah, I think the trick is the uh, pipelines a lot of times, right, with yep. the individual content uh, creation process. It's like they're different, so they can't actually reutilize. So it's like, yeah, again, back to the common data models and things like that that you need for uh, trying to be able to to do it. I mean, it's, uh, we, it's just, it's just going to take some time, I think. Yeah. Same thing happened with VR, right? All the VR, all the derivative VR experiences that you saw that were released coinciding with big feature film releases, none of those assets were shared. Yeah. We tried. We tried. We tried. <laughs> we absolutely, we, yeah, we absolutely tried, yeah. but in the end, didn't make sense. Well, Annie, I think it's a good transition about your Media Plus gaming uh, opportunity you want to talk a little bit about. So I'll pass to you. Yeah, thank you. I, I just uh, I have to plug this because it is pretty exciting and it's pretty fun. And I know we're on the Unity stage, so it's a little awkward to talk about Unreal a little bit, but you know you just have to. Um, so uh, so we just released um, on Thursday of last week uh, a Fortnite um, little short. It's called We Will Be Monsters, uh, and it's basically a reimagining of. Oh, I see somebody shaking their head like they play Fortnite. Oh, awesome, cool. Okay. Excitement. Um, yes, yeah, that's good. Good. Thank you. Um, but yeah, and uh, we just released um, a short. Uh, it, it's not short. Sorry. It's a, a part of an episodic, actually, um, of something called We Will Be Monsters. And it basically reimagines the um, monsters universe that we have with Dracula and Van Helsing and, and Bride of Frankenstein, for example, um, into these new characters um, that are actually diverse and very inclusive. It's very exciting, too, as well, because we've got a whole like really cool uh, a way to, to kind of have these 
these folks. And um, and the idea is like, you know, they're they're basically, you know, these these outcasts that um, have regained their power. And, you know, they're actually, you know, basically going to figure out like how they're going to take over the universe, that sort of thing. So it's, it's pretty exciting. And um, uh, the first uh, episode came out um, in the Fortnite uh, Short Nightmares Festival. Uh, and uh, there's a teaser actually out on the on YouTube that you can take a look at. Um, but what's cool about it is basically we used it as a vehicle at Universal uh, working with Epic to just, you know, first, uh, there was a whole bunch of firsts. Like we, we tried it, I think we're the first uh, studio to publicly try the MetaHumans capability. So all of the characters were actually built uh, and the environments, everything, all the animation, everything was built in uh, Unreal actually. So that's what was really interesting. And it was really for us at Universal, you know, it was kind of like, well, what can we do with Game Engine? How do we actually use it in production? And, you know, how, how real does it look? And, you know, is it, you know, animation quality? Is it, is it live action quality? Where is it? So it was really a great vehicle for us to basically try to test out the technology. But then also just bringing out these, you know, characters that we've had for so long um, and they were just black and white and they were, you know, a certain type of uh, ethnicity and, and, you know, and it's just like having them be like this reimagined type of uh, characters uh, in a new fun way for a whole new generation to basically check out and everything. So if you if you play Fortnite or your kids maybe play Fortnite, maybe go check it out. Um, uh, and again, there, there's if you just Google it, there's a there's a, a teaser as well that you can see. But. Um, everything again was built in Unreal and it was really exciting and um, you know it's just fun to see and there's a lot of potential for sure I think in Game Engine you know whether it's animation or live action and this was something that where we actually did like a sort of that final pixel in Game Engine I mean typically I think right now in, in production we're really thinking more so it's like you know a lower res it's meant for like you know like I said previs or, or something like that before um, and the only really high res stuff would be the in camera visual effects that you would see on an LED wall um, but um, but yeah I mean it's it's pretty cool it's fantastic and please check it out yeah I think that game engine work when we look at back to the sort of the pressures on the animation side I think where there's a lot more adoption of the game engine in animation production I think we're seeing more and more of that for the real-time render and the ability to get it to, to market faster right so things like this are again it's holding that tension to the first step to adoption right like that's really how we see innovation and adoption happen is somebody has to hold that first step and I know I can always count on Annie to hold the first step she'll hold that tension for innovation which is why we need her um, well thank you but it wasn't me there's was a whole team of people that sure, like did an sure. awesome job at this and you know I just got to sit back and watch it. So it's great. So we've talked with the last 15 minutes that we have, uh, we've talked a lot about production and we talked a lot about production technologies, but I really want to shift uh, a little bit, Travis, towards live ops and understanding sort of live ops is something that is extremely common in games. Uh, PlayFab being an example of live ops that we, sits on Azure and I know you're familiar with. Talk to me a little bit about gaming use of live ops and what you see as the opportunity for live ops within a media context. Yeah, thank you. So one of the things we're trying to do when building the cloud is to make gaming services that make it easier to build the types of interactions that you associate with live ops games. Where just to define, you know, live ops, it's like uh, it's a portmanteau kind of like DevOps, where DevOps is doing your operations like it's software development. There was a big transition in gaming when we moved from the product to a live service where it's like, well, we can't just finish it and put it in the box and go sign copies and go away for two months. Like people are expecting the games now to react to what's happening. You know, when if you if you launch a product now and you've got a bug like they really want to fix, like 
immediately and already looking for more content. But the question is, if you're going to continue that expense, if you're going to support this game, like how do you get the best ROI? How do you make the most people happy? And so LiveOps technology is really about getting that feedback from your players, being able to quickly analyze it, and then put it right back into the game as actions. And uh, that's actually something I think is really fun, this nature of interactivity. Like in, in PlayFab, we often talk about how, you know, well, we can segment somebody in about three seconds. So like if they're doing activities and you wanna change their game experience, it can really be like while they're going along. And uh, seeing that kind of like tactile, like we start to see like uh, in media and entertainment, like we already see kind of playlist-like technology where they learn more about your content preferences and you can kind of put that up. And I'm really excited to see where gaming technology takes it for things like loyalty programs or like really just helping there's already communities around media. Some of the best communities are around large media properties. And uh, and then so like, it's like, well, how do you actually do things together online while the experiences are happening? And I think that's where, I don't actually know what those look like because I've been working in games the whole time, but I'm just like, this is really cool. I bet someone could do something great with this. Yeah, I think when we see uh, content creators that come from a technology first standpoint, and we're seeing a ton of that, obviously, with the streaming providers, places like Netflix and, and Amazon and Apple that have come at it from a technology first perspective and then gone into content creation, I think they look at their service from a technology-driven standpoint, from an analytic-driven standpoint uh, for their streaming services. They've long focused on optimizing that live experience, understanding the data around their user, and then empowering changes within the experience for the user develop from that data. When I started at Microsoft, you know, it was like, it's first of all, it's drinking from the fire hose. You start at Microsoft, you come from media, you go to Microsoft and, and all the information on earth is available to you. But one of the very first things that I latched onto and what brought me uh, kind of to Travis is that I looked at PlayFab on Azure and said like, I, I understand what media can do with this, which is like understanding the churn within a streaming service, understanding how, to your point around playlisting and understanding what's important to you, Annie, or to your kids, that, you know, I often give the example of like, I like strong female lead content and I wanna see my character images related to my shows be female driven because that's how I'm gonna click through. It increases my click through. And I think there's a place here for us to understand that engagement opportunity from the gaming perspective in a way that really will continue to influence the overlap we have in audience. So back to what you sort of said, Travis, is like those who are fans of Marvel or those who are friend, fans of Jurassic World, as an example, are likely also fans of games. Uh, and we share that in common in the fan, right? And so I think better understanding how gaming has traversed that landscape of shifting from product to service to community, I think there's an opportunity for that to inform what we do in media next. Curious from both of you guys' perspective, having heard the description of live ops, maybe for the first time. Yes, that we'll was get live, was We'll get live reactions. Thank live reactions from Annie and Greg. I'm curious how you guys sort of see that from a media perspective. Is that something that sounds interesting sort of from the studio perspective and then from the content perspective. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, that that's, I, I was like, live ops, what's he talking about? Okay, uh, learning on the fly here. This is cool. Um, yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And I mean, I, I think for us at the studio, I mean, there was a time where we were wondering like, oh no, is gaming just going to take over the world and people aren't just going to want to watch movies or television anymore, you know, like episodic. Um, but I think, I think we've all come to the realization now that, you know, you have passive entertainment and you have interactive entertainment, right? And those two are just, they're, you know, just, 
just depends on people what they want to want to do right with their time. Um, and so I think living in harmony with the gaming side, and then being like you said, is like being able to to take advantage of like what we've learned in the M and E space, but then also what you guys have learned in the gaming space. I mean, again, I keep using the word fantastic, but it just is very exciting. I like about like the the um, literally that intersection, right? Because I think you can have these these separate different experiences that consumers will just love and there's a space for everything right but I mean you have to reach them in the proper way and like make sure that they're excited about it right and there's just I think there's definitely a lot more collaboration across the industries going forward than, than them being siloed like they have been in the past I mean again I mean I'm a huge collaboration person so I'm really excited about the fact that you know we actually get to learn from each other and like help each other out but you know back to your reuse thing again I mean it's like the whole idea here is to be able to have this you know this this universe right for these various properties like you said for like Jurassic World or for like Marvel or like you know all these different places where people are film fans but then they're also game fans and like they should be able to mix those two together so um what do you think Greg? So I see. So from a live ops perspective, I see it. I see sort of the relevance of it today from a marketing perspective, UI perspective, things like that. I think, you know, in Hollywood, in, from a media perspective, I think it has to be story driven. We've seen the first step. You know, when you look at some of the shows on Netflix, where you have the choose your own adventure type content, but that's more of an AB. You get two choices and that's it. Um, when you start to look at gaming worlds and the thought that has been put into the development of stories and sets and locations and all of that, once it's going to take somebody to, to put the story together to, to leverage the fact, right? This one, they're going to need to leverage the fact that they have live ops and they have a certain level of customization. Mm -hmm. And that has to be more intricate than just an AB yeah. scenario to truly make that that passive community yeah. an active community no, no I, I agree and thank you for bringing that up because it really is all about the storytelling right i mean that's like this all this technology is not here just to like because it's cool it's because we actually are enabling you know new stories to be told yeah, and someone from a storytelling perspective when you look at those tools that are available if all of a sudden you start talking about live ops somebody's going to do something really cool yeah Exactly. I just haven't seen it yet. Yeah, yeah. And, and then that's what's fun about technologies. Like, you know, people don't use it in the way you think they're going to that's use right. it, right? I mean, it's like our us production folks always do that. We mangle kind of like, you know, all this various technology. But I think with the live ops idea, I think there's actually some really cool potential there, right? Yeah, I think that um, some of the things you're bringing up is really exciting, too, because one of the one of the angles we're looking at when we're building kind of our best gaming cloud is really trying to keep in, in mind like all of the gaming creators from professionals to independent all the way to what we call like a citizen creator. And, and sometimes like it's really about driving that accessibility. Like, like, like you're saying, like, what does it take to make this possible? Sometimes we're just building tools. Like my, my daughter and I, one of the things we watch the most, our episodic is actually a community of Minecrafters. They called Hermitcraft. That's a weird plug to have in the middle of this, but like, <laughs> like basically it's, you know, a collection of like 20 or so YouTubers that have their own channel. They all kind of commit to an episode a week and they build some stuff and they have some hijinks and there's still production there. Like, they, like, in fact, sometimes you'll see in the comments, they'll go by like, oh my God, I got to edit like 20 hours of video. You know, we'll actually be in the subtext kind of just below the surface, but uh, kind of making this like even with live ops, like making the data available. So it's not just you have a major franchise or something, but like if you make some cool thing in a game, can you see whether people are engaging with it? Do you see yeah. whether they're having fun? Like what's their response? 
Yeah, and I think you've hit on a really good point about the democratization of the technology, right? So that, yep. you know, anyone can tell, you know, you don't have to be like someone in, in a big, you know, fancy uh, studio to actually put together some great stories. And I think that's what's really exciting is like speaking of being like more inclusive and having a more diverse set of stories out there, right? If like, you know, anybody can basically put something together, right? And then find out, you know, live like, you know, well, yeah, how is this work? It's like a friends and family screening, but like exactly. out in the world, right? And yeah. Yeah. I, I love the, how the, the creative process is a lot about like kind of bringing together everyone's agency. Like when you're working on a team on a big project, you know, it, there is the storytelling and there's a story that you're going to tell, but you know, like the actors, the artists, like everybody had a bit of agency in how that final story became true. And in gaming, we explore agency in lots of different ways where it can still be a linear story, but maybe the the way that you play it or the way that you express yourself is differently. And so, especially in democratization, really excited to see how great storytelling can be combined with giving people more agency, both as creators and participants. Yeah, I think it's interesting too, is like my kids uh, are at the age where they play Minecraft, but they watch a lot of videos of people that made a story totally. in Minecraft. 100%. kind of like recorded it. I'm like, oh, that's, yeah, that's cool. You know, I mean, it's, it's just like, I, I think innately a lot of us are just storytellers. We want to be able to like, just, you know, make up stuff. And I mean, it's just fantastic that they have the ability to just do that. I, I, I did have like one, if you don't mind, I'm going to ask yeah, a question. Yeah, go for it. Ask a question. Because now I'm curious, it's like, for because I've always been in the, the media space uh, working in the studios, but I'm just curious because it seems like on the gaming world, it's very complex. Like you have consoles, you have PC gaming, you have all of these different platforms. So it's like on our side, we always, it's always very complex just trying to distribute to like theatrical and then home and streaming and everything like that. But it's like, is it worse on the gaming side? Like, I don't know if there's like, are there standards in place for like the different platforms and how does- So there are standards, but it's also worse, yes. Um, I think a big part of it is as you add interactivity, like the modality of the interactivity changes. Like, I think, it, I mean, I don't know, but projecting what I would guess, like making linear media, like, you know, you can imagine somebody's watching this and maybe you can imagine them watching it in a few different settings. And then it's like, okay, well, I made a game, but you know, are they on a mouse? Are they on a, are they on a, yeah, what are like, their tools? Have, yeah. Tools for interaction. Yeah. Like or how are they, do they have voice chat? Like, are they able to see and interact with each other? Do they have friends that they're bringing along with them? So like, there's definitely a multiplicative effect. I think that in some ways, um, game streaming has an opportunity to like narrow it a bit. I know that, uh, for the, the last two Doom games that I was involved with, the first one we had probably about six distinct versions and targets, but we had about 20 distinct versions and targets by the time it was done. So it just kept multiplying everything out. It's like, oh, we got a bug. It's like, which platforms does it affect? And, and like every store was kind of a different platform. Every social network is a different platform. And so, uh, so one of the things we're hoping to do for creators is to bring it in a little bit. And it's like, well, we can talk about pixel streams and getting great interactivity streams back and maybe with those primitives you can spend more time on the art and less time on trying to figure out how it's going to work on 20 or 30 different things. Yeah, that's where I was kind of going with things because I think with the intersection of gaming and, and media, it's like now there's just this whole other new world that we're not familiar with, but I mean, it adds the complexity and like, how do we actually do this? And I, I think there is going to need to be a little bit more education on our side for like gaming and, and like understanding like the various, you know, renditions that you have and things that you have to deal with. One thing I think that yeah. this type of collaboration will be super important for is as we look 
look at gaming and like how it's informing even other conversations here at the the festival about uh, the metaverse. It's about like hanging out together in virtual spaces. But then it becomes like, well, what are you going to do? Yeah. When you get are there, you, what are you doing? <laughs> and uh, do you play games or do you tell stories to each other and making sure that the tools are available so that when when whatever the metaverse ends up happening happens, you have the opportunity that everyone can participate in creating games for each other and in creating meaningful stories to share their life experiences with each other. Totally. And I think part of, well, one of the reasons I'm happy to have this group of people on stage today is because I knew this would happen, which is we would see commonalities well, we just in our start challenges. I'm like, I'm going to just start interviewing uh, Travis about things here. Now you know how I feel when I met Travis. I was like, oh, I'm so happy you're solving for these challenges. We have these challenges in media too. So I think as we continue to kind of work together and, and, and ideate both from production to engagement, I think even the world that you come from, Annie, on the content side, the, your deliverables have changed over time, right? The way people are watching that linear content hasn't changed over time. And now with the democratization of internet access and technology, that's only going to continue to transform both for Travis and for linear content, right? So yep. it's like we, we're in the same boat in a lot of ways because we're servicing the same customer. So. Right. And I mean, that's the thing too, is like the customer has changed, right? Like they don't just watch one screen anymore yep. and focus on it, right? There's yep. multiple screens going on. My kids do it all the time. And I'm like, how do they split their focus? My husband so does like, it all the time. So yeah. everybody does. Everybody it does it, right? <laughs> I mean, there and then like you mentioned, it's like people are chatting with each other, right? And there's like that communal feel too as well. Um, so you got to bring that in there. So there, there's so much, yeah, there's just so much to explore. But um, as a technologist from my end, like just trying to enable these storytelling, it's like, it's like, it gives you a headache a little bit trying to figure <laughs> out like, how do you, how are we going to make this simpler for people? Because I can understand it, but like creative folks, you know. You have to democratize they, it, right? Yeah, it has do. to be democratized. It yeah. has to be available. And, and, you know, I think that's the challenge. And what I think is also to geek out on the Microsoft opportunity is like, those are things we think about. Everything from the citizen creator to the to the high-end creator, right? And making sure that the tool sets and the plumbing that Travis is building can serve all sides of those audiences, right? So, well, awesome. We have a minute and a half. Any Anyone have anything they want to share? I was just going to say, I think one of the, the sort of the coolest areas that I've seen is when these different, because we keep talking about gaming and then traditional media and entertainment and seeing them actually converge. So if you yeah. look at like some of the right, live concerts that have happened in Fortnite with, you know, huge yeah. artists, more opportunities, more experiences like that to, to kind of test the boundaries are going to be what continues to push us to the next level. Yeah. Um, you know, you look coming out of the pandemic, you look at a lot of artists who were all of a sudden direct to consumer and so they couldn't go out and they couldn't perform. We know the music industry changed over the years. So now if they're performing from their living room, how do you take that sort totally. of that format that's all of a sudden opened up? But start to provide you know, a, a more theatrical, uh, a more premium experience. Totally. And I think that's where we're going to see a lot more focus also on being able to bring our social graph to our interest graph, right? So when we think about community and, and how we define community within the gaming space and what we think the opportunity is for community and media and concert being one of those media opportunities, it's like, how do I travel with my friends that are familiar to me to all of these places that I'm on, these different streaming services, these different gaming consoles, these different concerts I'm attending in the metaverse, perhaps, like, how am I traveling with my my friends and family everywhere I go so that if I'm an NFL fan in one place and a Jurassic World fan in another place and I'm also a Dune fan, but we all share those interests and I want to travel with that same group of people everywhere. You know, I think that's we'll continue to see that as we get closer to that metaverse when when it becomes a reality, I think so. Awesome. Well, thank you guys for the engaged conversation. Thanks on, for having me. Thank you. Thank you.
This has been the Infinity Festival Hollywood Podcast, a production of the Infinity Festival Hollywood and the Augmented City. You can find us on all major podcasting platforms and our website, infinityfestival.com. That's one word, infinityfestival.com. And there you'll find a full schedule, speakers, and map of this year's festival. We want to thank our presenting sponsors, Z by HP, NVIDIA, XLA, and our co-presenter Qualcomm for their support of this audio series. I'm John Gaunt, inviting you to Hollywood's Vinyl District this November for the Infinity Festival Hollywood 2022. Thanks for listening.